Well, good morning. If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. It's been a joy to continually kind of pick at this narrative and see the dynamics of what the Lord reveals. And to, to be honest, and we'll get to part of how this has worked out in my own mind, but it's just been such a joy to see, I think, something I never considered before until you kind of put the brakes on and slow down, and, and quite frankly, you're held accountable to what you preach. Um, it just hadn't seen so much of the dynamic of what's going on here, and I, I think how the Lord is communicating between uh, the narrative of Nicodemus and the narrative of this woman at the well. There, there's so much richness when you, when you back away from the text. Um, Sunday school is fantastic, uh, but we tend to do, anyway, when I was growing up, Sunday school in a fashion where you take just a little narrative, and where I grew up, you get a moral lesson of what you ought to be out of that. Uh, and there's so much that you miss about what God is saying and how He's acting to redeem His people for His own glory. Uh, in the text. So, so what a joy. Let's stand and read together John chapter 4 yet again. And we'll start. Let's start in verse 16 again. Here the woman at the well and Jesus having this direct discourse recorded under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. John writes, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Jesus then, uh, just then, His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence today so thankful for this text, so thankful for what it teaches us, so thankful for the reminder that You are the One who gives new life. And Father, it is only by Your hand that Your church has been established, that Your Word has endured, and that Your message of reconciliation has come to us. So we come this morning thankful for the grace of being able to gather in Your name. And Father, we come this morning mindful that there are those who are suffering this week, a little three-year-old boy who uh, nearly drowned this week and was sent to uh, hospital in Austin. We pray for him and for his family. Just ask that you would give them grace and comfort. We pray for good outcomes. We pray that the CT scans and all the things that will be done to determine his health would show positive results and that you will have protected his little body providentially and that you will work in that young man's life. We're, we're mindful this morning of a, a, another church in town, uh, a church that differs from us largely in theology and that we would disagree with, but who has lost a, a former pastor, uh, David Smith. And Father, we know that there is uh, brokenness and hurting hearts and, and in light of the news of a faithful man like this um, passing away. And so we pray, Father, that you would strengthen 
uh, Gaynell, his wife. We pray that you would strengthen uh, those who are near to that ministry, and Father, that you would uh, be glorified as uh, the days progress and they grieve his passing. Uh, we also uh, pray for Blake Long, a young man, 27, who uh, this week um, was uh, taken in um, uh, an aneurysm and is, to my knowledge, still in the hospital at this point. We just pray, Father, for mercy there for his wife uh, and, and for their unborn child. We pray, God, for you to be merciful to those even outside that we can't remember all of the things going on in this world. But, Father, would you give us the particular mercy of inscribing the truths that we find in this text on our hearts? Uh, would you not allow us to leave this place without being changed by your word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week we heard Christ in this narrative say to the woman in verse 26, I am. Making the bold declaration, he's looking back at when Moses came to God after meeting there with God at the, the burning bush and being commissioned for the ministry that God would have for Moses. And Moses asks, who, who do I tell the people that have sent me? What, what is your name? And, and God responds, you tell them, I am has sent you. And so this woman uh, is amazed that Jesus has so clearly uh, revealed himself. And just uh, thinking through the, the passage at the very end of chapter 2, re we remember now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people, excuse me, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And now, if you would have been in this particular time period and you were in anticipating the coming of the, the Messiah to the Jewish people, you would have anticipated if he's going to reveal himself. If he's going to out who he is, he's going to do it in the context of uh, the Jewish people. He's going to do it in the synagogue, and he's going to do it in a public way, and he's going to lead in all of those things in the way that we would think that he would. The Lord doesn't, he doesn't have to respond the way that we envision he should respond. He works in his own way, in his own timing, and so he goes out, and this is glorious, our Lord comes, not only does He condescend and come to earth for you and I, but the place that He finds to be His pulpit, uh, where He will declare Himself to be the great I Am, is a well on the outskirts in Samaria to a woman who is considered to be faithful and despised, faithless and despised. This text is, is full of statements that if we really are anchored into the, 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 the historical setting and the time period, will just grip us with how gracious and kind our Lord is. And he didn't entrust Himself to men because He knows what is in all men, but then He comes to this woman and He does reveal Himself. He, he, he declares that He is the I Am. But then there's this, this astonishment that comes from, and, and we have to give the, the disciples, I think that there's a way to read our Bible that at every page we look at the humans that are surrounding Jesus and we just go, what idiots? Gosh, if I would have been there, I would have understood all of this way better. I, I would have been attuned to what Jesus was doing. Friend, I would encourage you that when you read your Bible and you see the deficiency in the human beings surrounding Jesus, you need to see in those human beings yourself the reality that we would respond no better. And here we find in, in these few verses uh, 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 an interesting uh, narrative of the amazement of the disciples as they return. In verse 27, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? And why are you talking to her? Uh, there, there is this connotation and understanding that, that as opposite sexes in, in this culture are talking to one another, they're generally seeking after something and those are the two questions that normally would be put forward. Why are you talking? What are you seeking in this relationship? Nobody asked that question. But yet they're still amazed that Jesus is talking to this woman. 
To their bewilderment, Jesus is having the audacity to talk to this Samaritan. Now, again, in, this, in our time, this isn't that big of a deal. A, 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 a teacher and a lady having a conversation is not that big of a deal. But, but the religious leader of the day, Nicodemus and the boys, they would have taught a very clear-cut delineation between any man and any woman having any public conversation. It is recorded that the the rabbis at the time would say, let no one talk to a woman in the street. No, not even with his own wife. That would have settled getting backseat driving directions. (laughs) But we don't live in in that day, gentlemen, so don't try. Uh, They would go on to say, every time a man prolongs a conversation with a woman, he causes evil to himself. He desists from the law, and he ends up inheriting hell. I mean, these are stark uh, cultural views. But this wasn't just a woman. And that's what we have to see. This isn't just about gender. That's where it starts. But the fullness of the narrative would tell us that that this was a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans, again, were looked at as those who were compromised half-breeds, those who had intermarried with Gentiles and were no longer worthy of the respect of the Jewish people. And not only that, but this woman is the worst example of Samaritans. If the Samaritans are typified by being faithless people who have ultimately given themselves over to debauchery in their life, this is the epitome of that debauchery. This is not the woman that the Messiah is going to reveal himself to. She's not worthy. Well, that's the whole point of the narrative. And that's the problem that so many religious people have. Is Brian, they come and they think, well, we need to be worthy first. We need to prepare ourselves first. We need to be ready first. And then God can do something with us. But what God's Word teaches us over and over and over again is that God doesn't need our preparation. God moves and He redeems by His own divine will and for His own glory. I think it's interesting that the disciples here are astonished. Now, because look, we've been given the narrative. We know what they've been talking about. We know that Jesus has just declared, I am. We see that. They don't. And they show up and they go, oh, oh, no. He's talking to a woman. And he's talking. Somebody, Peter, go talk to him. Reason with him. There's this amazement. But what we see is more amazing. They're amazed that he's talking to a woman. We're amazed that he has declared who he is to this woman. And she's amazed as well. The the most amazing thing that we find here is not the outward reality that he's talking to this woman. It's the inward reality that he has birthed her anew. The, 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 The astonishment is this, that the disciples only have the ability to look on the outward appearance of man and they're astonished at that reality all the while what God is doing is He is transforming this woman in a way that escapes their gaze. There is this joy in coming to this text and seeing the most astonishing of all miraculous happenings is, is God taking a sinful individual and making them a daughter or a son of the king. And that's exactly what is happening here. She was the first example after Jesus had made the pronouncement to Nicodemus about being born again of new birth. This woman walked down the hill a daughter of Adam. She was only thinking about her temporal needs. This woman woke up one morning and like every other morning, saw that the the household needed more water 
And, and she waited. She knew I'm not going to go out in the morning time because I, I'm an outcast and everyone will see me. I'll wait until the middle of the day when, when no one else is there and then I will go. And there she's on her way in her sins, dead spiritually, coming to this well to draw up water physically. And there Jesus meets with her. And when she leaves that well, her curse has been taken away. Her sins have been atoned for. Uh, she is in Christ, I think, in, in, in what we can see here. She met with the one who gives life and that in, in abundance, and now she is a daughter of the King. That's what should astonish us. That is what should captivate us. And quite frankly, this is a text that should regulate how we try to witness the gospel in the world, the methodologies that we use, and that we would not be given over to the foolish ideologies of religious people, but that we would merely proclaim that the great I am is Jesus Christ. He has come. Repent and believe. Now the question is, how do we know that she was born again? Well, we know because of the fruit that we can see in the life of this woman. We know because she's changed. She was not manipulated into a religious um, confession. She was not manipulated uh, emotionally to do something outwardly. What we see in the life of this woman is what happens in true conversion. It's not that she's put on something. It's that the new life has been given to her and the well that can't be quenched that Jesus has just proclaimed to her is now flowing out of her and her life is radically different. Amen. She doesn't have to be emotionally twisted into some religious fashion into some into some vein of friends you know one of the things i think in our day is so lamentable is that people have, have hijacked the gospel and used it to, to further their own ideas of how people should behave and the, the gospel that is being proclaimed so many places this morning is a proclamation of behave not a proclamation of be saved And the only way that you can, can go on proclaiming behave is to manipulate people. I mean, one of my good friends in this church is Brian Kendrick. And there's no way I could ever get him to behave. I mean, I, I just start there and it's over. It's true. Was that Libby or Brian that said it's true? Okay. <laughs> anyway, at, at the end of the day here, we see from the fruit of her life that she's transformed. Now, change is a normal part of life. It's, it's a natural uh, reality for all of us. I go to the mirror all the time expecting to meet a 20-year-old. And I just kind of tilt my head and go, where did all of those gray hairs come from? There is change in life. And that happens not just when you approach 40. That, that happens all throughout life. One of the joys of pastoral ministry is visiting families when they have new little ones. And um, that recently with Ranger and the Andrews family, uh, it was a joy to be there as he was born and, and to see a little one come into the world. And it, it's amazing all of the different changes that happen so quickly and so radically for a little one. When they go from being in the womb to being out of the womb and in the world, th their body physiologically, um, I've learned some of this by being around doctors because I'm not that smart and don't, don't know all of the physiology, but um, I, I know part of what happens when they cut the umbilical cord, there's a valve in the child's heart that has been opened the entire time it's been developing, and that valve has to, in an instant, turn around that's not a medical term. And it has to pump blood throughout the body because the baby's no longer dependent on mom. The baby's now having to circulate uh, oxygen in its own capacity. Um, their lungs uh, were filled with fluid, and now they have to breathe air on their own. The, the, the temperature that they've had for almost nine months of nearly 100 degrees now has to subside to a normal level. Jesus had already used the illustration of new birth uh, 
coinciding with new spiritual life, when someone is born again, there are also certain changes that take place in their life. These changes took place in the life of this nameless woman who had met Jesus at the well, and they must take place in our lives if we are to have a credible witness before a lost and dying world uh, as well. When a baby is born, there is, I, I can't remember which one of the Andrews children it was, but I remember Sarah was, was there and uh, she, she came home and, and the thing she immediately reported to me was that it took a little bit longer than normal for the baby to, where's Amy and Sean? Are they in here? Hey, it took a little bit longer for him to, to, to cry out and, and Sarah said it was a little bit of an intense moment. I think Ranger was pretty quick. Anyway, I, I remember with all of our children and we all have had this experience who are parents that there is this moment where you're, you're, you're waiting for the child to cry for the first time and that first cry is such a joy and then you get to spend the next 18 years dealing with crying. But we want the first cry. We really enjoy that one. The ones after it are negotiable. Um, and, and so that's, that's part of what we see here in the text as well. Uh, when a person is born again, there is a cry of confession. There is a desire to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He has done for the individual who is uh, realized that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. We sang this morning that when we came to Christ, our conscience agreed that there was no excuse for us. And, and, and in that, we cry out, Abba, Father. We, we cry out a confession to the Lord. We agree with what His Word says about who we are and who He is. And we go on in an emotional, generally, way when we're first born again to obnoxiously tell everyone that we come into contact with. I remember early in my Christian walk, if, if, if a shirt, t-shirt had Jesus written on it, I thought that it was sanctified and I had to, I had to wear it. Now, I've grown from that. But I, I remember some of my family members go, oh, gee, here he goes. Like, like there's such an intensity early on. And I do think, one thing I'm, I've mulled over, and I, I'm not decided on this, but often I hear people explain their Christian life and that there is this intensity and passion early on. And boy, I wish I could just get back there. Now, friends, I, I think that that's okay. We should always have an intensity in our confession. We should, never, we, we should never grow cold in our love for proclaiming who He is. Uh, but I do think that the Lord changes us in the way that we do that. In the same way that a, an infant is going to cry the first time, eventually we hope that that child can communicate in syllables. Well, the same thing happens, I think, in the Christian life. It's, it's not that we want the intensity to subside, but I do think that instead of just relying on, listen, early in my Christian life, maybe you're different. I relied a whole lot on just emotion, just how I felt. And, and, and numerous times, this is what would happen. I would hear somebody preach and I would go, well, that doesn't feel right. And I would go back and look over the text time and time and time again, and i go, boy, well, I guess my feelings are wrong because the text is right and I'm a liar. My, my, my feelings, my emotions aren't what dictate the truth here. So our confession has to be based in what we know from the Scripture and not just an emotion, but that generally is swept up with it. And we certainly see that here in the life of this woman at the well. There must, though, be a clear confession of Christ in the Christian life. I, 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 have, I, I have heard so many people say things like, well, even some very scholarly people who I respect and who I do believe are Christians and when they are asked do you believe their response will be something along the lines of well that's the most personal private thing that that it, it could be asked of a person like how dare you ask that publicly well here's the thing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is deeply personal if it's real but there is nothing in Scripture to support that that personal reality is a private matter. Now, you are called according to the purposes of God, not for your own benefit first, but for His glory. So yes, it's personal, but it's not a private matter. It's a, it's a matter of public proclamation. We see all throughout. Now, now, here's the other thing I want to say before we move on. 
We've got to be careful about how we order the confession of Christ. And this is really important. And some of you may disagree with me, and that's okay, but I, I, I'm convinced uh, with Scripture that this is true. Some would say that, 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 that ultimately to be born anew, you must confess, and then you're born again. But I believe the Scriptures teach the exact opposite. You must be born again, and then you confess. Here's, 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 the, here's the epitome of modern theology. Moms, you've gone in for that last sonogram, and they listen for, for what's going on with baby. And, and, and modern theology would be the equivalent of taking the, the direct discourse with Nicodemus and Jesus and saying, well, well what the doctor needs to, to do is go in and wait and just listen. And he's listening, he's listening, and finally mom's like, dude, what are you listening for? Well, I'm just waiting for the kid to tell me that he's ready to be born. And once he says, then we'll go ahead and, and, and start the process. You would go, I want a different doctor right now. But most modern American churches don't say, I want a different doctor right now. They just say, preach on. Keep preaching a gospel that we decide and then we're born. No, no. We're born again and then we come crying out of the spiritual womb. And we come professing what God has done for us. We come just like this woman has, not expecting, but being renewed. And then we tell the entire world, come. Come see this man. Come and witness who Christ is. The, the, the confession of faith is not something we generate. It is something that ultimately flows out of the reality of what God has already done in our lives. Is there a necessity for a confession? Yes, but it is not a precondition for salvation. It is the evidence that salvation has already occurred. Again, faith is personal, but it's not private. In Matthew chapter 10, we find these words, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Or Romans chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that the Lord that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not saying as a precondition, if you do these things, then you will be saved. It's saying if these are things you are doing, then rejoice in the reality that you are one who is being saved, and one day that redemption will be complete. You will be saved. That's what's being said there. Now, again, we, we've got to look at this passage then in light of this confession and see a, a stark difference between Nicodemus and this nameless woman. Nicodemus is in all... Uh, again, remember, the disciples show up and they he's talking to this woman? Of all women, we've got to choose this one? And, and they're not able to discern. But we have the gift of seeing these, these, these narratives in tension and seeing the reality that here comes Nicodemus one night and he's, according to what we can see, the most spiritual out of the two. Nicodemus came to Jesus, but Christ had to seek the woman. She didn't come to him at all. She came for water. She came for what she could get. Nicodemus asks the first question. Uh, he in, interjects with Jesus. He wants to, he, he wants to know something. Well, the woman uh, was approached by Jesus. Or excuse me. Yes. Nicod uh, the woman was approached by Jesus. Nicodemus asked how a man can be saved. Nicodemus wanted to know how can, how can one see the kingdom of heaven? This woman, every time something spiritual was brought up, what did she do? She tried to dodge the question. She tried to move away from that narrative. She, she didn't want to deal with the spiritual things. So outwardly, if we're going to decide this morning, Cam, who's a better candidate for salvation, you and I may say, well, Nicodemus is our man. We're putting our money there. There's a reason why it's unwise to bet. Because God is not beholden to our logic. By all earthly accounts, Nicodemus was the, the one. But when the rubber met the road, what we see in this text 
is that we have all of the reason in this world this morning to believe that the woman at the well was born again. Not so with Nicodemus. Now, I'm not passing judgment on Nicodemus. I'm not saying that I can ultimately tell you whether he was saved or not. But what I can tell you is this. As religious as he was, as well-studied as he was, as moral as he was, as decent in society as he was, none of those things would save him. If you come this morning and you argue those are reasons why we should believe that Nicodemus is saved, you're arguing something other than the Gospel. The Bible does give us clear evidence that from the words that, that this woman speaks and from the deeds that follow of her new birth, but not so with Nicodemus. Nicodemus had heard, heard Jesus preach this great sermon on the new birth, but there's no confession. Now, some people in, in Baptist circles today would say, well, that's, that's Jesus' fault. He didn't, he didn't throw sawdust down and ask for people to come forward and hand them cards to fill out. So it's really Jesus should have done more. That's nonsense. We see Nicodemus twice more in the Gospel. In, in this Gospel. In John chapter 7, uh, the Jewish leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. And Nicodemus, uh, being somewhat in his own right, uh, a righteous man, the, the, John 7 records Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now some people are going to look at that and they're going to say, see, Nicodemus is fighting on Jesus' side so Nicodemus has to be born again. Well friends, Nicodemus is giving great civil advice here. He's a great civil litigator. And this is right in that sphere of litigation. But this is no confession of faith. It's not clear cut. After the crucifixion, we also find him with Joseph of Arimathea uh, seeking to embalm Jesus in John 19.39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, to bring, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. And somebody's going to say, well, that is, a, that is a great act of kindness that he's doing for the Savior. Well, great acts of kindness for the Savior will not save you. This isn't a confession of faith. Now, can we hope that Nicodemus is born again and that's the motivation for these things? Sure, but, but the biblical narrative doesn't give us that data. So, so what we can say is that Nicodemus may have believed, but we don't know. But when we, when we ultimately look at this woman, we see something different. Uh, we see a man who has all of the religious fervor and all of the forward momentum to meet God. There is a thing called provenient grace that some people have brought into the church. The idea, and I'm going to break this down, and so I'm probably going to biff it a little bit, but the idea that God has done all that He can do, and He leans in with grace, and He gives you provenient grace. He stirs enough to help you up but then you've got to get the rest of the way home. You've got to make the decision. These are the people who would say ultimately, in some sense, you make the confession, then you're born again. These are the people who say that when we go to the doctor, we should wait until the physician hears the baby in the womb crying out, let me out of here before the baby's born again. It's not how it works. And we have to sift through the text. Is that what the text really teaches? Does the text teach that we have to precondition ourselves for salvation? Well, if that's true, Nicodemus had done a great job. He knew the Word. He had done the deeds. He was a moral man. He was a civil litigator. He stood up for what was right. This woman didn't give a rat's rear end about any of that. She had lived her life in abject immorality under a system of, of worship that was contrary to what had been revealed through the prophets. She had rejected part of the Bible. If you would have come to her, Brian, and said, do you understand justification by faith alone? She would have said, get out of my way. I've got to get water. Like There's no precondition that we would ever look at this woman and go, yeah. She didn't even want to talk to Jesus. 
And yet we hear flowing from her mouth this grand confession. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? And again, she's, she's not saying here, she, she's not asking in a way, I wonder. She is running into town saying, the great I am is here. She's making the declaration. And none of this, you can't read through the narrative and come away with, well, she decided to follow Jesus. No, she didn't. He decided to come and grab her through in the depths of her depravity and bring her unto Himself for His own glory. That's what's happened. That's the glory of the Gospel. And we should never listen to preaching that diminishes that glory. And I think the reason that people want to change these things is because we've got to change the narrative a little bit if we're going to make good moral people. The, the insanity is people will take the narrative of Nicodemus and the woman at the well and they'll contort things and they'll make it so that, Brian, you have to do something to precondition yourself for grace. Sarah, you have to get yourself right. All of those things. Why? Because we as fallen creatures want to make for ourselves our own disciples to our own religious preferences. But do you know what I can tell you on the authority of God this morning? No one ever in their own human strength, has ever taken a sinner and made them a saint. Only Jesus can do that. And He only does it by divine decree, divine favor, and through the working of His Spirit. It's not about our human effort. It's about His infinite grace. And that's what we see here in the woman at the well. She's come to the good confession because the God of the heavens has reached down and birthed her anew. So we see clearly that she has made a confession of faith. We also see in her life a change in her living. Not only did she make a good confession, but she had a change of heart. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, and that's when she makes her confession. I, I love how detailed John's Gospel is, don't you? And don't read through John's Gospel and say, okay, she left a jar. Who cares? This is inspired of God. Now, I think there's a way that we read too much into the text and we allegorize and things that aren't helpful. But I think what we have to see is that there is a shift in the focus of this woman. Her, her entire way of thinking has dramatically changed. And there's nothing trivial in, in the Word. So we have to see that here. That we have to see the reality that the whole narrative in this portion, this pericope of text, is, is surrounding water. She comes for water physically. They start talking about water and the well and the different kinds of wells. And again, we made that distinction in the, in the words that are used here. Uh, not just a stagnant well, but a well that uh, is fed by a spring that overflows in, a, in abundance. And they have this entire conversation that they discuss. And, and Jesus offers her not physical water, but spiritual water. And Jesus gives her that living water. Now she leaves all of the cares that she had come with to tell others about Jesus. Her focus had changed. Her, her, now, it's not that this woman didn't walk away from the well if we were hyper-literalists. And, well, this woman never had to drink a water, drop of water again. I don't think that's what the narrative's saying. I think she still had physical necessities and physical needs and, and, and those things were taken care of in the normal uh, providence of God. He, he provided the water in the way that He did for everybody else. I don't think that woman ever went to that well the same way again. I, I don't think she ever returned thinking, boy, there's something important that happened here, but I just don't remember what it was. I, I don't think that's what happened. There was always of supreme importance from this day into the day that she saw Christ in glory. A significance of the spiritual reality of what the, the new water in abundance that Jesus had given her in that moment over and above the physical water that she would draw out of that well for the rest of her life. She prioritized anew. The spiritual component matters more than the physical. And I'm just here to tell you, as Christians, we sometimes stink at this. Because our physical needs often seem more pressing, more demanding, more real. But this woman came away with a change of not only in her confession 
She, she before was just kind of, do we worship there, do we worship there, conflicted in her theology. Now she's confessing who Christ is, and she also has a completely different outlook on the physical things around her and, and a right prioritizing of those things. Now she's concerned with Christ. She's been changed. So the question for us this morning, if we profess Christ, great, but has there been a change in your life that has come as a fruit of your being born again? If you profess faith, but there is no change, there's, there should be reason to pause and doubt that confession. And, and when I ask, have you, have you ever had a change in life? I've heard some preachers say, you know, Brian, if you're born again, you'll never have the desire to sin ever again. Woo! That'll mess with the... I remember being a young guy hearing stuff like that and thinking, just in despair, well, then I guess I'm not saved. Because if there's one thing my rotten heart's after a lot, it's sin. That There are uh, still an appetite. So, so what I'm not asking is, have you been transformed overnight? This kind of holy zap theology that when you make a profession of faith, then all of a sudden all of your desire for sin is completely eradicated. That's not the question because that rarely happens. I, I think it can happen, but it's, it's rare. Um, I'm also, I don't think that by asking this, we're talking in terms of have you been even radically changed in some areas. I think what we're simply asking is, is there a change in your life, a change in direction? Is there a, it's more along these lines, are you being changed? Is there an ongoing process in your life of being more and more conformed to the image of Christ through the Word of God and the Spirit of God? Are you growing in the Lord? It's not just that the question of salvation is often framed in a once and done kind of uh, question. Have you and whatever the religious thing is and then you're good. Well, that's just sacred odalism. And you can call it Baptist, you can call it Lutheran, you can call it whatever. But if you just have to do one thing and the priest or pastor is involved and then you're good to go and you can go on and live however you want, that is not salvation. That is sacredotal at some level. What is real salvation and the real test is are you continuing to grow? Because if there is a well springing up, and we talked about this, you can dump sin in, you can dump dirt into that well that's overflowing with water. The water's just going to keep pouring out. You're going to grow. Ultimately, your sanctification is the work of God in you. And so if He has birthed you anew, God is faithful to complete what He began. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, have we had change in our life? And is that change continuing? It scares me, beloved. When I hear people that are in their 70s say, I've grown enough, I don't need to grow anymore. That is a declaration that you don't understand the Gospel. And I mean that with love. And when I say it, it scares me. It concerns me to think that we've grown enough. What that says in some sense is this. I've grown enough that I can be accepted in the religious camp. So could Nicodemus. So what? If we are really born again and we have waters flowing in us, the spiritual life, if God has given us, Christ has given us abundant life, then there will be a thirst that is never quenched ultimately. Ultimately, we will want more and more. The thing I know about Jesus is the more that I know about Him, the more I want to know about Him, and the more I know about Him, the more I know I need Him. The more I know about Him and how great He is, the greater I see my own deficiency. So a declaration by the God's people that we've grown enough, we've learned enough, that doesn't wash. For anyone, we must continue to grow. John's Gospel ultimately focuses on these kinds of changes. Throughout the remainder of, uh, of the Gospel, uh, we see kind of a, a twofold change in view that we would profess the faith with our lips and that increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly, we would walk in light of that good profession. So we speak with our mouths that we believe, but we also live like it. 
Right before Christ's crucifixion, we see intensifying emphasis in, in his discourse on how Christians are to live. There is to be unity in the body. In chapter four, chapters 14 and 15, you, you will hear Jesus talking about how He and the Father are one, and so we are to be one in the body. There is, is to be a growing affection for one another. And that unity is not, not to be around all of our preferences, that unity is to grow around Christ, the one whom we come to the triune God through. He also prays in John 17, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they, may, they also may be sanctified in the truth. Here's the deal. This morning, I could take the... We could, we could, we could do what good Baptists do. We could form a committee. And, and let's decide what the purpose statement for the church is. I, I get so frustrated with these questions. What's your motto for your church? What's your vision? For you not to be a sinner and to be more like Jesus. Get after it. <laughs> Ultimately here, Jesus prays what our ambition and goal in the church is. And that is to be people who are consistently, lovingly, in unity, pursuing the truth in the Gospel. And if someone comes in and says, well, I, I don't think that it matters what doctrine you believe. When I was training for a long time ago for search and rescue stuff, they teach you that when you go through a house, when you leave it, you put a big red X on the door so people know not to go back in there. That you've investigated, you know what's inside, and you just move on. When people say, we don't need truth, we don't need doctrine, now, I'm not saying that we give up on people. But in some sense, over that statement, let's say not over the people, but over that statement, you just put a big red X. We don't even know, need to go there. Because if Jesus has prayed for something for his people, why would we aim at anything less? And, and then people are going to say, well, then you're going to get denominations and you're going to have disagreements and all of that. Yeah. Not because Christ is deficient, not because His Word is erring, not because He has a problem. You know where the issue is with the Bible? Between this page and the back of the seat every time. It's with us. It's with our understanding. And the reason why there's division in the body is because we are deficient people. You know what we ought to do then? It's not, so the solution comes, this is how lazy we are as people, Braxton. Well then let's quit pursuing the truth. No! Let's join in Christ's prayer and continue to pray for the truth, love one another patiently, not expect that everyone's going to be the erudite theologian the second Sunday that they attend church and grow in grace together. That's what we... Listen, I think it's fantastic that old Nicodemus didn't go, get to go running back to the Jewish people. Come and see. He didn't do that. It was the lowest of the low of the lowest women, the lowest person in that society that Jesus ignites a passion in her heart that she makes a confession with her mouth and she runs back. These people knew her. What came through the gates of the city wasn't just some person that's been hyped up on charismatic religion. What came through those gates was a woman who had some sort of a deficient reputation in the community. And God is proving that He doesn't need your reputation to proclaim the good news of His Gospel. He does it by grace. Some of you in this room have things in your past that keep dogging you and you think to yourselves, well God, I could never serve in this capacity or that capacity because God knows what I've done over here. Quit allowing Sins that Christ has conquered to define the ministry that He can use you for. Ultimately, if God is going to use an instrument for His glory, boy, that instrument better buckle up because He's the one deciding if He's going to use it or not. That's what we see in this narrative. Her life has radically changed. She, she, she's professing, and I think we also have to believe that 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 her life downstream from this, there was, there was, there was a, probably some of the same struggles she always had. But there was a growing in grace throughout her lifetime after this because what God does 
is He sends someone who confesses, who declares that they are in Christ and they believe and know that He has saved them. But He never does that in a way that, that ultimately He's going to undermine it by their life being in the contrary direction. So if someone's really witnessing for Him, it will be both in profession and in their living. And that's what we see here in this text. We are also called to love one another. John 15, 17. These things I command you, Jesus says, so that you will love one another. We are also called in, in John towards the end to guard and to keep the commandments. We're, we're told in, in John's first letter those realities as well. Friends, the, the, the truth is in our lives, do you know, want to know why the Christian ministry doesn't, doesn't flourish, why it's stifled in America today? I believe it's because we prosper. I, be, I believe 100%. People all, well, oh, hey, we're getting close to the end and there's going to be persecution. Bring it on. Not that I glory in the suffering. But nobody's going to wear a it was you who he died for t-shirt when they're being persecuted. You know, all of the nonsense where they change, you know, the, 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 there's going to be a seriousness about the gospel when your life's on the line. But we live in such a time that instead of leaving the jar and, and, and living for spiritual things, we live for the material things. The, the Christian church in America, you want me to prove it? Turn the air conditioning off. She just wanted water. We want water, air conditioning, perfect sound, good lighting, the pastor to have perfect, you know, hairstyle, whatever. Sorry, I'm a disappointment. We, we've got to quit looking at all the physical things and focus on what is spiritual, making the good confession and living our lives to the glory of God. That should be the focus of the church. We all have these things, these water jars that preoccupy us. Whatever keeps us, can I just say this without any equivocation? Whatever keeps us from pursuing unity in the body of Christ and the truth of the Word of God, lay it down and move on. Finally, in this woman's life, we see a concern for the lost. There's a confession of faith. There's a change in her life. There's profession and possession. She is possessed in her frame by the Spirit. She is professing faith. Now we see that she had a concern for people that did not know the Savior. Again, she ran back to Sakaar, going through the city gates, proclaiming the, the, the reality of what she had heard. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Why would she tell other people? We learned last week, part of why she, she was motivated and moved was because I believe with everything in me. She understood Deuteronomy 18, 18 if I remember correctly. She understood the, the proclamation of the I Am and the, that there would be a prophet who would have uh, the, the words of God on his lips. And she understood that this is the Messiah. And out, I do think out of a, a, a mysterium tremendum, a, an awareness of the holiness of God, she drops everything and she goes back. But if we're not careful, we'll interpret that in some sense that it's just fear and trembling. There is fear and trembling, but what quality, what motivating factor is moving her in the direction of other people. And here's what I think it is, and we can disagree because I don't know that I can prove positive out of this text. I think it's systematic through the entire Bible. What has changed this woman? Think about it in this culture. Think about being a woman, ladies, in a culture where you're not allowed to talk to a man in the streets. Not even your own husband. Now, some of you are going to go, oh, if only... Sarah, don't amen. You're, you, you live in a culture where when the religious leaders, the people who should love you and shepherd you and care for you, when they come out in the mornings, one of their prayers is, God, I thank you that you didn't make me a dog or a woman. I mean, we're not talking about a lot of love loss for women in this culture. 
And she's got the reputation. She's been, in this economy, women were absolutely, ultimately dependent on men. To be apart from a provider male in this economy meant you were destitute and an outcast. No one loved this woman. There were people that wanted to use her for her body. That had happened throughout her life. There were people who had told her, I love you, but it was all just emotional nonsense. There was probably in her life some uh, filial affection kind of thing that she had experienced, but she had never experienced the love of God. And I think in this moment she had. She had finally come to understand what it meant. If this is the Christ, imagine uh, good Bible interpreters don't just go to lexicons. They try to live as people. And what you try to do is get in the shoes of the people in the narrative. And, and, I, and we can go wrong with this. We can start mirror reading, reading into the text things that we have, emotional deficiencies and the like. But I, I think if we just take the, the, the data and we put it together, this is a woman who never hoped that anyone would ever honor her in any way. She's going to the well in, in, in the hottest part of the day to escape everyone else. She's going there because she's, she's the one that when she walks through town, all of the dignified women turn and talk. And she's realizing in that moment that the Messiah has come. And I haven't heard this from other people. Now, I don't know if she consciously knew this, but being the first one to hear that good news proclaimed, that in and of itself shows the love and grace of our, our Savior. And knowing that he's come and she's spoken to him face to face, she has to have an awareness of the love of God. And can I encourage you with this this morning? Sometimes you may struggle with why don't I, why don't I witness more effectively? Do you know why I think we are marred in our witness, Dion? It's because we try in our own strength. We think... I just need to be a better witness. I'm going to read those four books that I have on my shelf that have dust on them about personal evangelism. I'm going to read those again this year. That's my New Year's resolution. I'm going to read through all of the different tactics and the different ways and, and all of that. And then locked and loaded, come June, I'm going to have everything in my toolkit that I need. I'm going to go out and I'm going to be a good witness for Jesus. You're going to be a horrible witness for Jesus. Because Jesus tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 15... If you abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, you know, I gave this woman, Lewis, power and strength in her witness going back into that town where she was despised and ridiculed. She didn't go in going, hey guys, hey, I want to tell you something, come here. She went running through the city gates on fire to tell people, come and see. Why? Because she was rooted and grounded in the love of God. If you want to be a strong witness, abide in Christ. You need to be marinated in the love of God. You need to know that not your theology, not, not your winsomeness, not your charisma, not your erudition and study, none of those things prepare you to witness the glory of Christ as much as well, really two things. One, knowing that you are an abject sinner deserving of hell, but that in that identity, the God of all the ages has lavished His love upon you. And if those two things are rightly held in tension, I promise you, you won't be able to shut up about it. But see, I think far too often we get enamored with our own way of thinking about the Bible, about our own you know, efforts and all of those things. Friends, the fruit that comes, comes because God has placed a, a living well inside of people. Cherish that well. Go back to that well. I don't think that the image we're being given here is, well, once you have that living well, just go out and live however you want to. I think the image is come back to Him day in and day out. And feast upon him. If you're here this morning and you're normal, and I'm thankful you're here this morning, let me say that first, but your normal mode of growing in Christ is to come to one Sunday service a week, and that's your only time fellowshipping with the Lord, you are a starving child of God. 
You need to feast on His Word day in and day out. You know, it's interesting. We started this narrative, look in verse 16. We started this with Jesus saying to her, go, call your husband and come back here. Well, he knew he was leaning into her sin. You use this word, come, come back. Now she's been born again. And here we see that she has a confession of faith, a change in her life, and a concern for those who are lost. This one pivotal word that we find all throughout the Gospel, particularly here. Come. Come back. And we find in this profession, this confession of faith that she makes in verse 29, that same word. He tells her, go out and come back. She starts to try to diverge from the conversation. He does a work of grace in her heart. She goes out telling everyone, not just her husband to come back, but everyone, come on. Come and see that the Lord is good. And, and you might think, well, that's fine. That's just John's gospel. Is it? Think of the verses that contain this declaration to come. And I, I want to make a point and we'll be done. And the word come, and it depends on how you translate some of your Bibles. Not all are going to read this way, but the import of the underlying Greek is a beckoning, a call this word was used to Abraham. Acts 7, verse 3, Come into the land in which I will show thee. It was a call to Moses to be Israel's deliverer in Acts seven thirty four. Come, I will send you to Egypt. David wrote in Psalm 46, Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations He has brought on the earth. God spoke through Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The angels spoke the word to all the skeptics as they pointed to the disciples in the empty tomb and they said, come and see the place where He lay. In Christ's invitation in Mark chapter 10, He says, come and follow Me. In Matthew chapter 11, come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And finally, it will be the song of the angels as they invite the redeemed to the marriage supper of the Lamb and of Jesus Himself as He says to His own, come, you who are blessed of the Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared, for you since the creation of the world. The Bible declares, Lewis, that we are sinners. But God Himself is declaring to a sinful people, come. Now here's the difference. I, I think we have to... Boy, totality transfer is a problem in the text, isn't it? When we take one word and it means the same thing everywhere, don't do that. I'll I, I tell you. If you go to, let me illustrate this. Brian, if you go to the doctor this week and they run some labs and the guy comes into the room and he says, it's fine. You can pick your stuff up, go home, you're fine, promise. If you go home and you ask your wife a question, honey, is it okay if I do this? And she said, it's fine. Whatever it is that you're suggesting, don't do it. Because it's fine does not mean the same thing in that context that it meant in the doctor's office. I'll meet you back at the doctor's office if you move on in that direction. You see how words can have different connotations. When this woman goes back into town, I really think that in her frame, she is so beset with the love of God that she herself is ushering people, come, come. There is a sense in which she has an inward desire that others, a concern for the lost, that they would be saved. But that won't save anyone. Because it's completely different, the word, when it's spoken from God's mouth. When God says come, He's not saying it in a finite frame with an empty desire. When God says come, He's saying it with a divine decree and a declaration. And all, this is what John says, not Jay, all of His sheep hear His voice and what do they do? They come. So when God says it, it means one thing. When we say it, it means another. But here's what I don't want you to miss. 
Continue to go out in the lost and dying world this week, Cam, and deal with your bosses and with your, those you work with and those we study with and, and all of those people. And you, Harold, come. The desire of your heart should be... Friends, this church supports missionaries all around the globe who have broken hearts, who love people, who are like this woman, who are going into those lost people groups and declaring the Gospel that says, come, be reconciled. Our efforts are used in that direction, but what we need to pray for more than anything else is not that they hear the words of the missionary, but that they of a missionary, but that they hear the words of the missionary, the Spirit of God saying, Come. Because when the sheep hear his voice, they will come home. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful that we've heard your voice. We're thankful to hear the command to come. And we're thankful that we can bring all of our burdens, everything that besets us, our sin, and we can lay it at Your feet. And Father, You make all things new. You don't need our reputation. You don't need our morality. You don't need anything to precondition us. And yet, You set Your love upon us. You give us the good confession. You give us the ability to live a life that accords with that profession. Father, we're, we're so thankful we know that our concern for the lost is weak and anemic. In our prosperity, we've forgotten that the reason you've not returned is because there are others who need to hear the Gospel. So might you give us a passion both in our personal witness and our love for missions in our care for the lost. Might you mold this church in a fashion that would be well-pleasing to you. And might we bring you glory not because of who we are, but in light of all that you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand, we'll sing, O oh God, our help in